You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My, a bi-weekly podcast about healthcare law in the United States, brought to you by the healthcare group at Kroll & Mooring. I'm Pyle Nanavetti. And I'm Joe Records, and today we have Barbara Ryland in the studio to talk about Medicare Advantage and supplemental benefits. As we've seen in the news recently, the president signed an executive order on October 3rd that sets forth policies that would encourage Medicare beneficiaries to enroll in Medicare Advantage plans. One of the particular policy issues addressed there is benefit flexibility, particularly the use of supplemental benefits by MA plans. I want to get into a little more detail on supplemental benefits especially. Let's start broadly and talk about benefits in general under Medicare Part C, under Medicare Advantage, what generally is covered, and then we'll queue up the conversation about supplemental benefits. So generally speaking, under Part C, Part C covers everything that Medicare Part A and Part B cover. So institutional care, inpatient hospital care under Part A, and then under Part B, the menu of outpatient benefits such as doctor's visits, some drugs, and DME, and a variety of other things that are outpatient benefits. So those are required to be in a Part C plan. That's what a Part C plan agrees to provide. Supplemental benefits is the part of the benefit that a Medicare Advantage plan can provide if basically it's got enough money left over in its bid to provide additional benefits. And so those benefits often are the benefits that they use to market the plan and distinguish the plan from, say, some other plan in the market. Tell me more about the money left over in the bid. Sure. The way the bid works is CMS comes up with a rate, and it's a county-level rate for every county, that it expects to be the amount of money that it would have to pay for under the fee-for-service program. And then every plan that wants to provide a benefit in that county provides a bid of how much it would expect to pay for that same menu of benefits. If it's less than what CMS would expect to pay, some of that money, not all of it, some of it goes back to CMS. 25% of it just goes back to CMS. The rest of it is available to fund additional benefits. And those are called mandatory supplemental benefits, which is to say the plan has to use that money to provide additional benefits of some sort. Okay, so the plan uses this extra money to provide benefits that it thinks will be attractive? Right. So they could use it in some sense. In some ways, they might reduce some cost sharing. They might reduce premium. They might do a variety of different things. Typically, what's happened is now that the program is about, well, it's 13 years old or 14 years old. It first went live in 2006. There are a number of different benefits that are sort of tried and true and that beneficiaries have come to expect. So you typically see those in most plans if they can afford it. And these would be things like budget for over-the-counter products, health products, not any products, but health-related products that don't require a prescription drug. Other really popular benefits are vision care and dental care, because those are not part of the Medicare Part A or Part B benefit. So those are highly valued benefits. And when you say people come to expect it, we're talking about Medicare beneficiaries who are shopping for Medicare Advantage plans, and these supplemental benefits are, are so ubiquitous, or they are offered so frequently in different Medicare Advantage plans that beneficiaries have come to expect them when they're doing their shopping. Is that right? Right. So a lot of beneficiaries might, for instance, use them as a distinguishing factor. Oh, if they don't have this kind of benefit, I'm not interested, and so on. Yeah, but those are some of the really popular ones, and you tend to see them 
being offered by just about every plan, particularly in a really competitive market. So you mentioned that there are mandatory supplemental benefits. Are there also discretionary or voluntary supplemental benefits? Yeah. So the plan has the option of offering supplemental benefits that the beneficiary can pay additional money for. So outside of the bid cycle or outside of the bidding process, if, say, a common one might be, for instance, a discount card or a discount program where maybe the plan doesn't provide a vision benefit, but maybe it has really good rates with a vision company. And so they might provide access to a discount card. And they may not even have to require additional payment, but in some cases they would give additional benefits, whether it could be vision, hearing, and then the beneficiary would pay a modest premium or a fair market value premium just for those additional benefits. They're not mandatory. The beneficiary can utilize them and pay for them, but it's a benefit of typically it would be at a lower rate than maybe the beneficiary could get on their own in the market. Are there voluntary supplemental benefits that MA organizations can use to actually drive down costs? Are there ever supplemental benefits that don't have a premium associated with them because the result is that the beneficiary actually costs less medically? No, that's not how it works. <laughs> no, they have to pay something. There is a fair market value. I mean, basically, you can't give things away, right? I mean, the beneficiary inducement statutes under the fraud and abuse laws apply to Medicare Advantage plans just as they apply to other types of providers under the Medicare program, in the Medicare program and the Medicaid program, but in this case, the Medicare program. So you cannot just give free stuff away. Even if you could sort of say, justify it by saying, well, this would actually reduce costs. I mean, first of all, there's probably not a lot of evidence for that. And secondly, it's just not permitted. So can you tell us a little bit about the changes that we're seeing in the recent regulations? So in general, over the last five years, both on its own initiative, CMS, as well as due to some additional legislation that Congress enacted, has been trying to make its approach to supplemental benefits and really all benefits a little bit more flexible for plans. So in the 21st Century Cures Act, there were a number of areas where Congress actually directed CMS to allow for the provision of non-health-related supplemental benefits. Mandatory supplemental benefits are required to be health-related or have been required to be health-related. And so beginning in this year, in 2020, Congress directed CMS to allow certain non-health-related benefits to be made available to chronically ill enrollees, and that's a defined term. And so those non-health-related benefits can be non-health-related, but they have to be sort of geared to basically assist someone maybe in managing their health or in addressing health needs. And there's, again, rules around what you can and can't do. But for instance, a non-health-related benefit might be transportation to a doctor's appointment or we're seeing also one plan that is giving access to a care coordinator for both medical care coordination, but also to navigate maybe some non-medical benefits, whether it's food assistance or some other areas where the person needs help that are not directly related to their medical care. We hear a lot just in general in the public discourse about the social determinants of health. And it sounds like transportation services or, or nutrition-related services are things that would sort of fit in that sphere, where it's one step removed from actual health services, but things that, that do have an impact on the overall health and well-being of the beneficiary. 
I think that's right. And in particular, I think transportation is often used as an example of an area where it is a real driver of whether someone can even have access to or can take advantage of health-related services. So that's a big one, of course. And what are some other changes that CMS has made besides allowing for these non-health-related benefits? Yeah, and just to go back with some of the other changes that CMS has made sort of on its own initiative, they're now allowing plans to deviate a little bit from, or at least have more flexibility in what's called the uniform benefit rule, which is to say that, you know, all benefits have to be available to all people. CMS had a fairly rigid view of what that meant. So you couldn't, say, design a benefit that was aimed directly at, say, beneficiaries who have diabetes. They have relaxed that a little bit. Another area, and I think this is one where we've seen, I think as expected, by regulation last year, CMS basically expanded the ability of plans to offer telehealth benefits outside of the supplemental benefit, which basically means that previously, if you wanted to do a telehealth benefit that was broader than Medicare fee-for-service, you had to use your supplemental benefit budget. And most plans weren't interested in doing that because it's a basic benefit. And so one, it's confusing to beneficiaries, right? And two, it doesn't really offer them anything extra for their money because they already are entitled to these visits. And what else did CMS do to enable telehealth to be more attractive? So they basically changed the rules and said, no, as long as you know you can actually put the telehealth benefit in the direct benefit, which is to say the default or the basic benefits, but you can't force someone to use telehealth, right? You can't force it. And now that the rules have changed, are plans offering telehealth services? So just a quick survey of the major plan shows that almost every plan has, in fact, now giving access to people to telehealth benefits on a very broad basis. And this is a win-win because it just expands the number of ways in which you can get a benefit without necessarily increasing the cost. And one of the downsides or one of the reasons why CMS is given for why it has not adopted more a broader approach to telehealth has been that they're concerned that it will simply expand the number of visits that people get because it's extremely easy to pick up the phone. So the plans will be sort of maybe a little laboratory in terms of what happens to utilization when people have access to a really broad telehealth benefit. How has adding telehealth as a benefit driven technology adoption in the Medicare Advantage space? So I think, I mean, but it's important because I think that the telehealth benefit is sort of on the leading edge of what you would call benefit innovation and moving beneficiaries away from, say, receiving all their services through personal face-to-face encounters with the doctor and allowing for an expanded range of ways, not just of seeing a doctor, but of also using health data. And I think that a lot of maybe technology companies that are interested in getting into the health space or, you know, tried to look at how they could potentially become an offering to a Medicare population. And supplemental benefits were sort of the natural space where that would occur, because not only is it hard to get Congress to approve an additional benefit under the fee-for-service program, but then you might lose control over how much you can charge, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, the economics may not be great. And we've seen that a little bit with some of the areas, such as the chronic care management benefit and some other benefits that are now fee-for-service benefits and that allow some of these remote monitoring is another area, but where it's maybe hard to figure out the economics because CMS may not see the value the same way. So I think that 
we will see an increasing number of plans that do try to offer benefits that take advantage or allow beneficiaries to take advantage of technology. I think there continue to be some concerns, if you will, over the digital divide, the role of the digital divide in one, making that a really broad-based benefit so that as a supplemental benefit, it really appeals to a lot of people because, you know, to drive new enrollment. And also just so that it doesn't raise concerns about discrimination, whether it's based on income, age, or other factors in terms of just whether you're sort of unduly marketing to a certain class of people, because obviously that's not permitted under the Medicare Advantage program. So we've talked a lot about benefit flexibility from the sort of from the perspective of the MA organization, but another, as we're talking about technology and new things coming to the marketplace, it seems like another significant player here would be the startups, the healthcare companies that are creating new technologies and ways to deliver services more effectively. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of ideas out there. And sometimes the way to market might be through a supplemental benefit. That's true. One of the challenges of the Medicare Advantage program is that there are a lot of rules. So, and there's, and there are a lot of challenges. I mean, and so for instance, a plan could adopt a technology or allow the use of a technology And if it pays for it sort of out of its administrative budget, it can do that. The challenge is working it into a benefit plan so that it can basically get the government to pay for it, to wrap it into the premium that is used as the amount of money that is spent on healthcare services for a whole host of reasons. That's much more advantageous to the plan. So I think for a lot of companies, it's a challenge. It's probably why you see a lot more of this sort of thing being adopted in the commercial marketplace where plans have much, much greater freedom and flexibility. They don't have this rigid rules-based template being imposed on them in quite the same way. But I think ultimately for supplemental benefits, what the plans really care about is, is it something that beneficiaries want? And so that sometimes may be a little bit of a divide where you know a beneficiary, again, is looking at we might say, well, technology, that's really cool. And they may say, yeah, but I'd rather have my non-prescription medical needs met by an OTC budget, which is like almost, you know, you can't imagine much of anything that would be lower tech than just handing somebody money and letting them buy products that they have access to. Anyway, so that's the calculus, if you will, that every plan has to make, that between providing a new benefit that really appeals to people very strongly but may not appeal to as many people and therefore not drive enrollment. So yes, it is, it's an opportunity, but there are some limits. And I think a lot of plans, it won't take long for most companies to realize that plans have to consider more than simply whether it's cool or a good thing for the plan. These are benefits that have to appeal to beneficiaries as well. And I guess we'll probably get more information over the course of the next few years about what the uptake is like in terms of use of the telehealth benefits and then what that's doing to overall utilization. Right. So that would be something that obviously the plans will figure out for themselves and potentially CMS through MedPAC or through its own study of the plans could in fact look at that and that might potentially lead to a broader fee-for-service telehealth benefit. So we've been talking a lot about Part C. I think there might be a CMS regulation that you're not allowed to talk about Medicare Advantage unless you at least mention Part D also. Is this just Medicare Advantage or is there anything in in Part D to think about in terms of benefit flexibility and supplemental benefits? Because Part D is different, (laughs) 
There is no fee-for-service counterpart under the Part D program. So the whole logic of the supplemental benefit is that it's something that's in addition to the Part A and B benefits that are already available under the fee-for-service program. Under Part D, there is no basic benefit that's offered on a fee-for-service basis, all of Part D's through private plans. And so the process works differently. I mean, there's definitely every year there are updates and there are changes to the program, but there isn't this kind of process where you sort of get, you can get additional benefits and those are used as a marketing tool. I mean, they market themselves differently. And there were updates to Part D. Most of the really dramatic updates that were proposed were not adopted. And those would have been basically utilization management oriented towards managing more expensive drugs and drugs in protected classes. So those are things that have been on the government's wish list for a while, but they ultimately scaled them back or just eliminated them entirely. So the changes under Part D are not necessarily as dramatic. And when we're talking about these changes, we're recording this in the fall of 2019. But generally, we expect to see in November a proposed rule and then in around April a final rule for the following benefit year. Right. So the cycle basically begins almost as soon as the new plans come out and start being marketed, which is in October. And then there's about a month or the open enrollment period. And then sometime in early to mid-November. Sometimes the day before Thanksgiving. Sometimes the day before Thanksgiving. (laughs) They come out with a new set of updates. They usually call them technical changes, and oftentimes they are anything but technical. But at any rate, they come up with the updates, the proposed updates in November, and then they finalize those. I think this year they were pretty late in finalizing them, but they finalize them somewhere between April and May. And my rule of thumb is that the later they go in finalizing them, the more likely it is that they're not actually going to adopt what they propose because by that time, plans are in full swing trying to anticipate next year's bids. And they can't turn on a dime in late May for a submission in early June if everything is dramatically different. But typically, it's mid-April that they finalize them. Last year, they did a number of things that, again, they didn't follow through on. So is there a chance that CMS would try to follow up on those technical changes from last year? I don't anticipate that they will try those things again, because I think it will be too much of a repeat. I think that they usually wait a couple years at least before they sort of come up with some of these wish list items, particularly around protected class drugs. There was one item that they had indicated, they didn't propose it, but they said that they wanted to propose it, and so they wanted to receive comments. And that was on what's called DIR, where the Part D plan recoups from pharmacies an amount that is ostensibly related to performance-related factors, quality, and a variety of metrics. They basically said that they wanted to give beneficiaries at least some benefit of what eventually, what is basically an amount that reduces the cost at the point of service. But because it's done later, the beneficiary doesn't get the benefit of that at the point of service, if that makes sense. If the beneficiary has a 20% co-payment on a pharmaceutical at the point of service and it's $100, they pay $20. If six weeks later, the plan comes back and says, oh, well, we're recouping an additional $5 because of these quality and various other metrics, the beneficiary never got the benefit of that. So they had indicated that they wanted to change 
certain defined terms in a way that would give the beneficiary the benefit of these DIR amounts. They did not follow through on that, right? They did not. Ultimately, they got a lot of comments. They said they got a lot of comments and they thanked everybody for the comments and said, we're not moving forward at this time. And I think that the reason why they did that, and I'm just speculating, I think the reason they did that was because in the meantime, a rule came out that would have eliminated the rebates from the safe harbor. And I think it was just considered to be a little bit too much. You know, maybe they didn't want to come in with a final rule not knowing what the final rebate rule would you know, say because these all affect you know, how things right. are priced and paid for and things like that. And it would have been potentially two major changes at the same time, right. essentially for the same, for the same benefit right. year. Right, for the same benefit year, and then they also, but they also would have been legislating in a vacuum, and I think that right. they were really reluctant to do that. So I'm, all of this is a lead up to saying we may see that again this year. They may come back and say, well, now that the rebate rule has been thwarted or whatever, dis, you know, basically repealed or not, they're not moving forward with it, whatever you want to say, they may come back with that would be one thing that I would maybe look out for in the next year. All right. And I think we will leave it there. Thanks so much, Barbara, for joining us today and join us next time on Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Mm-hmm.